All right, so here we are in our passage today, um, and my slideshow has ceremoniously quit again. One second. No, don't. I'm going to fix it. I'm doing it, guys. <laughs> oh, I'm back. I'm back. Okay. Thank you. Um, we are in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Um, every now and then, I like to point out passages that should be in your wheelhouse. If you're, if you're a highlighter, underliner in the Bible, these are some of the passages that should be on that highlighty, underliny part. If you're a person that's done the Romans Road and you like to keep portions of the Romans Road in your Bible, this passage today might be one of those. And so I really encourage you to think through this passage because it is one of those whole-scale passages. So I think that when I share the gospel with people, one of the most helpful things I can do, because I'm not interested in scalping them, taking their scalp, bagging them in the moment, saying, are you ready to make a decision and then lock it in and walk away and feel good? I want them to interact with God. And the last thing I want them to do is have a fake emotional experience, right? So I want them I want them to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what Jesus says. And so one of the best ways to do that, besides explaining it to them, is then direct them to passages of Scripture that say it all. If they can read it, connectivity. You've got to learn how to read your Bible. That's actually why we're doing that intro class in a couple of weeks. If you've ever sat through a training on how to read your Bible, I would really encourage you to sign up and come for that because it's, it's a fundamental, basic part of walking as a, as a child of God is learning how to read his word. And so then we, as responsible readers of his word, we can actually put those portions in front of them. And some of them take no trickiness at all to understand them. They're just really straightforward. Today's passage is lacking most tricky things and is extremely straightforward and very helpful and very meaty on so many topics. Let me just pray simply for us as we go. Father, um, we sit here having rested under the identity given to us in Christ. Um, we now sit here as people who have been given your spirit, every last one of us that have submitted to the work of Jesus for salvation. We have your spirit. So, Father, please, um, because you are generous with your spirit and you promise to give your spirit amply and fully to those who ask, we ask for a quickening of your spirit. You'd commission to work greatly in us. For me as speaker guy, for the rest of us as listeners, and for me as a listener as well, Father, that you would please um, bring us to full understanding of this passage and genuine belief in these truths today. For your glory, our joy, hope of the world. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in chapter 5, verse 1. Um, our first piece today um, and my, my uh, guys, I might have to have you guys rescue me back there. This thing keeps breaking. So, um, Our first piece today, our title is Grace of Peace and Pride. I know it sounds funny, Grace of Peace and Pride, but I'll explain as we get along. Our first point today is found in, in, uh, in verse 1. God has declared a specific peace. God has declared a specific peace. We live in, Christian, we live in America. I, I don't know what it's like to live in Mexico or Canada or other places of the world, but I know in America... A whole bunch of us hate and disown the possibility of God. And there's a whole bunch of us that like just this schmarmy, weaky, um, oh, God loves everyone. And we say that there's a God and we forecast all kinds of just slop on him. Like no purpose, like just general, like God is love and God accepts. And um, that's really not helpful. It is very helpful to go to God's word and read what God says about himself. And God declares a specific peace. Look in 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we learn this word justified has happened again and again. There is this concept of, of okayness, of worth, 
acceptability before the face of God, and that's called righteousness. And when that righteousness, when you're made worthy or acceptable before God, that phrase is called justified. You're made righteous before God. So we've hit it again and again. One, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a note, I think that one of the most amazing things in the gospel is the gospel calls us to a wholehearted following belief, trust in Christ. But right out of the gate gives full assurance. The book opens up in chapter 1, verse 7, about peace to you, peace from God towards you. Here, you have peace with God. It doesn't say like if you're really strong, you've been believing this for three years, really knocked out some of those bad sin habits, then you have peace with God. No, no, no. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have declared by God himself peace between you and him. It's done. It's settled. It's established. I remember talking to um, a gentleman back when I was in college. He and I were working together for the city of Santa Clarita doing day camps. And, uh, and he was a believing Catholic, a Catholic believing Catholic doctrines. And we were having this discussion. And he goes, um, he goes, if you, say, if you say that you have confidence with God, if you tell people that, what's going to motivate them to keep going in obedience? You have to have threat or harm to motivate people to obedience. I'm like, well, that's honest and good, but that's just not the way he does it. If you're reading, because we're Protestants, we keep reading the text. When you read the text, it's confidence, 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 confidence. Confidence given to the, to the one moment old believer, confidence to the really old believer. And both of them, their, their confidence is not built upon their achievement or their immaturity or maturity. Their confidence is built on Jesus in whom they put their faith and trust. Peace out of the gate. Out of the gate. And so if you're not a believer, you need to know that he's offering specific peace through Christ alone and full peace. And if you are a believer and you'll wrestle with sin because you're going to be sanctified, though you're justified, you're going to be sanctified until you go to head home to be with him, you're going to mess it up. And probably by the end of this sermon, you're going to mess it up again in your head. You need to know, if you're God's child, you have peace between you and God because of Jesus, not because of your performance and not because of the wonder of your faith. Your faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. You access that through faith. We'll get there in a second. So we as humans, in this, this idea of justification, we as humans largely function on a unique form of forgiveness that is at an inter, interpersonal level. So um, let's just say someone sins against me, right? And um, it's Eli. Eli sins against me. He's like, oh, he grieves my heart. And he goes, hey, would you forgive me? And I would say, yes, I'll forgive you. Okay, so what's happened is a, is a relational piece here. Like, I, I, I've, he's done something against me. He's asked for forgiveness. I relationally count as if it didn't happen. Okay, that's human forgiveness, and that's what we almost all work on. Okay, when God is talking about forgiveness in the scriptures, he's taught, he has that level, but what he is particularly talking about is something much deeper in level. The forgiveness that God gives is a greater level than that. It's actually an actual and legal addressing of the injustice. I have sinned against God. My sin, my rebellion, my treason, my little antish hand-raising to the God who makes and sustains the universe, um, that needs to be dealt with. If God doesn't deal with that, he's unjust. He needs to deal with my hand raising against him. So if there's going to be 
divine forgiveness, real forgiveness, the real forgiveness that gives peace, he has to deal with that and bring justice to it. He is making right the wrong, bringing punishment to the wrong, and then, and then fully supplying the righteousness of what should have happened. So when I, through my distrust, or I, through my lust, I, through my anger, and these hundreds of thousands of moments in my life, and I raise my little anti-hand, so you're not trustworthy, you're not real, you're not good, you're not satisfying, you're not worthy of following. And I raise my little hand in my heart, even though I have a smile on my face and don't feel like I'm doing that, I'm actually doing that. Every time that action, that rebellion must be dealt with, must be punished. And then number two, there was good that should have been done in that moment that wasn't done. We've got a double problem. The good wasn't accomplished, instead I dug a hole. God and his forgiveness of us through the death of Jesus, Jesus takes on a physical, actual punishment. That actual punishment covers my debt. It deals with my infraction. The forgiveness is actually dealt with. It's not just simply acted as if it hadn't been done. It's brought to a cord. And then the second thing he does is he lived that perfect life, a life of never falling into any of the traps that I fell into, nor the ones that you fall into in five minutes from now, never did. In fact, even higher than this old, like, internal law of God, he was a Jewish guy. He had the Mosaic Code, the Mui Grande, the hardest of them all, the one given by God himself that was insanely impossible to fulfill, and Jesus crushed it. He did every single moment right and perfectly fulfilled the law. The normative stuff and the Mosaic Code did it all in perfection in his humanity. He didn't God cheat his way through it and go bzz, 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 but as a man in perfect faith, perfectly lived life to the fullness of it. And because he's divine, he then has the ability, he's bought himself the ability to justify, to fill your dip with his blood, with his punishment, and to supply your lack of righteousness with the righteousness he gives. When he justifies, he justifies by a gift, both the negative and the positive, given. Big word, imputated, right? It's imputed to us. So Jesus does something totally different than I have to do with Eli when I forgive him. I relationally overlook it. But what Jesus does to me is something totally different. He doesn't overlook it. He deals with it. And that's why there's rest. That's why there's peace. Our human sense of forgiveness is always kind of questionable, right? It's like, it's questionable because, well, it's usually kind of emotional. Like, to be honest with you, when I say, sure, Eli, I forgive you, he knows that like three hours from now, I might have a bad spell and go, oh, that Eli. You know what I mean? I can take it back. God doesn't take it back. Our human relational forgiveness is usually based highly into emotions and what we're promising. But God's is different. It is permanent. It is perfection. It is never taken back. It is not based upon emotions, uh, nor the failure of me as a repeat offender against Eli, nor or him as the repeat offender of me, nor as, as me as maybe the, the, the take-backer of forgiveness. God's forgiveness is totally different. So, brothers and sisters, just for a moment, as you think through God's forgiveness, be careful that you do not cast on God a form of forgiveness that you've learned here on earth through ways that people have forgiven you or not, or the way that you forgive or not forgive people. It's totally different what God has done as he has justified us. So, brings us to this. Why then 
could our righteousness and justification not be accomplished by what we do, gosh darn it? I keep my lawn mowed. I keep my trash emptied. I empty my neighbor's trash. I do these things. Why can't some of the things I do actually be part of the equation of me being declared acceptable before God? The reason your stuff and my stuff cannot fit in the equation is because the gift is of grace. It is a grace gift. If your actions, your worth at all go into it, it is no longer a pure grace gift. It's a partial payment, partial payoff, um, a wage. It's a wage. But salvation is never a wage. To any degree that we feel like we rightly belong on God's good side because of our decency or merit, we are denying his glad and glorious grace. So to any degree that we feel we rightly belong on God's good side because of our superiority or me being better than you vice versa, anytime we think that, and you do, you, let's be real, you do. If you're not a believer, you permanently think that, and Jesus is calling you to unthink that, surrender to him. He goes, you're not right. You're not right with me, and you never can be right with me. Let me make you right. And for you as a believer, a believer of two days old or a believer of 60 days old, you know we wrestle with this, right? With our failures and our wins, all of a sudden we kind of go haywire, and the Lord are like, well, I'm not that bad. I'm going to get good prayer reception today because I didn't mess it up. Or, or we think I'm not that bad, or, or we become overwhelmed because we see our sin. Be careful. Preach the gospel to yourself again. What did I bring to the cross of Jesus? Nothing but sin and brokenness and death. What do I have now? Fullness. How do I, how do I get that? As a gift by God through the work of Jesus. So we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves. Um, if you are an unbeliever listening to this online or in room, know this. We are people of God's grace, and we never stop being that. We're calling you to be a person of grace and give up your abilities of trying to talk God into liking you because it will not work. You don't have that. That's why that gift is given as grace. So number one, we are, prom- we are promised immediate peace with God on account of Jesus justifying us when we place our faith in his promise to do it. Our second piece, oh, my slideshow's back up. It's great. We permanently reside in grace. We permanently reside in grace. Look at verse 2. Through him, that's Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Into this grace in which we stand. Maybe it doesn't pop off the page immediately to you as this. But Paul is saying, by grace we entered into this, and in this grace we still stand. We still stand. We didn't get into it by grace, by accessing grace through faith, get into it, and then maintain our positions through merit and obedience and actions. We get into it by grace, and it is God's grace and goodness that keeps us in it. We are always, always people of grace. And the grace of God isn't the grace of God of a moment, where all of a sudden you are just declared clean. It is, it is now a grace where you are actually, yeah, declared clean, but brought to something. Declared free from something, but brought into something. So grace So follow this. Grace is the system of credit or worth. Grace is the system of credit or worth. It's how we get credit or worth. Grace is when credit or worth is completely provided from outside of the person, a complete gift system. That's what grace is. When we say amazing grace, you're saying amazing complete gift system. Amazing system where there's no internal credit worth, a system where everything's brought in from outside. How then 
is that grace accessed? So the grace is out there. Now there's a couple ways that that grace could interact with a person. Number one, it could not interact with the person. There can be God being gracious and the person having no connection to the graciousness. Or a person, God could be gracious towards a person and the person is fully, rightly under it, but not understanding it. Third, they can have it and fully understand it. How do you access, how does one access into this system of grace? The access is it is presented to the recipient and the recipient accepts it. They place the faith in it. So that's why faith and grace are connected to each other. Faith is the access by which we access and connect to the grace itself. And as important as our faith is, the big thing is grace. I think back to Romans chapter 1. We, we, we look to him who predestined us uh, as sons and, and daughters to the family of God through Jesus Christ to the praise of our faith. No, no, no. To the praise of his glorious grace. What gets the thumbs up and what gets the spotlight? The gift. The giver of the gift. What doesn't get the spotlight is our, is our faith in it. So the big thing is grace. The big thing is not faith. But faith is super important. It's the only way by which you'd ever access the gift given from the giver. So we are saved by grace, rescued. And here we see that we still stand in that grace. We never leave it. We got here by grace. We stay here by grace. We will never be moved past grace. That's why we're going to sing grace, 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 amazing grace. Uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. We as people, when we look at scripture, we see that there is something to be glorified. And that is God himself and his perspective towards us, which is a gracious perspective. Never withdrawn from us as his people. Grace in which we stand. Always stand. Third piece. We proudly embrace our singular hope. We proudly embrace our singular hope. Whoops, sorry guys. It broke on me again, so now we're double pumping it. I'm, just, I'm hands off the system. I'm hands off, okay. Um, our third piece, we proudly embrace our singular hope. Look in verse, at the end of verse two. Through him we've also obtained an access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So grace, 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 right? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, killer words that I think go totally Christianese on us. And we hope, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yes. But can you explain that to a four-year-old? Rejoice, hope, glory of God. Like, let's just knock those Sunday school definitions out of our head a little bit. There's meatiness here. So if you're like me, and you might be, you may not be, but you often are like me, we look at a sentence like that, which is just fat and pregnant with goodies, and we're like, blah, 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 blah. It just sounds like, uh, like, like textual curly cues at the end of a line. Like, oh, right. But it's not. It's not. It's actually really amazing. In this text here, there are two things rejoice. If you're reading ESV or you're reading NIV this morning, the word is rejoice. The word rejoice shows up. There's two things you rejoice in this passage. I'm going to argue, but not explain for you for a second, that there are a couple different words behind the words rejoice. And the word right here is particularly not so much about the happiness you get in it. The word used right here is the confidence you have in it. It's a word used 32 times in the New Testament, 29 of which are rock-solid boasting is what we say. Boasting. And that's why we have this God of peace and pride. He's got to give us peace, but pride. Not the stuff that kills you, where you and your little ant-like steak raise your hand to the Lord and say, I'm greater than you. Not that kind of stuff, but rightful pride in him. So the term here is confidence. The term here is boasting. We boast 
in the hope of the glory of God. So there's the boast. We are people that have confidence and openly so. Confidence and open confidence where we speak of it and embrace it. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Interesting in this book. The glory of God is God in everything about him. All the impact of him. Like, um, uh, we're going to look about this in a couple coming weeks, but it talks about the glorious glorious appearing of Jesus. It's not that just, there's a glory to you. Um, Shinetta. Oh, she's got glory. She does. So if you know Shinetta, like, there's glory to her. Like, when you get to know her, there are traits of her that are, are wonderful. Things that she's in, that are way stronger than me. Some things I'm stronger than her, right? We're different, right? But there's a glory to her. It's the way she looks. It's the way she handles her family, the way she walks after Jesus, all those kind of things. There's a glory about her, right? But then there's Jesus, and there's a massive glory about him. He made the place. He sustains the place with the word of his power. He endured every temptation and crushed it all. He fulfilled the law. He taught perfectly. He loved a bunch of dudes who would turn their back on him time and time and time and time and time again and then forgives them time and time again and then equips them like he did all of this. And he, the grace giver, is also the judge and he is coming back and people will fall to pieces in front of him. Like when he comes back, the glory of Jesus, the eminence of who he is, the majesty of he is, the beauty, the righteousness, the fullness, the love, the wrath, all of that, that's what we're talking about, not just the guy. The fullness of who he is in his heart and his power. Um, someday, there will be a grace given to us for us not to dissolve ourselves in front of Jesus. <laughs> you know, when he, when, he, when he lands there, you see him, and you don't melt like butter. Um, instead, you know, you stand there because he goes, peace. Remember when he shows up to his boys after the resurrection shows up? What's the first words that was a peace? Peace to you, peace to you, because they're like, ah, the one, we, the one we listened to and didn't listen to and then denied, he just showed up, walked through the wall. And he's like, peace, peace, out of grace. So this glory of God in this book so far has a unique track. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. We as particularly uh, Gentile non-believers, we cover the grace of God. We obscure the truth. So the, 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 the glory is there, and we've hidden it, right? Then in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally the word lack. We, we, don't, we don't interact with the glory of God. We are God-glory-less people, right? So we've hid it, and now we're absent from it. But then in chapter 5, all of a sudden, we are neck deep in it. We, the people who hid the glory, we, the people without the glory, now, because of God's grace, are people who are completely enraptured in the glory. We have, we have nothing else. We have nothing else but the glory of the one that we didn't have and that we covered up in chapter 1. It's a total shift in gospel. The gospel flips us from being anti-God to being pro-God, from being people who hide his glory to people who embrace his glory. Amazing shift. So boast in the glory of God, but it's not just simply boast in the glory of God. There's a little word between we rejoice or we boast in the glory of God, and that word is hope. So last night in the Burns household, we had a little family discussion. Um, as most of our family discussions go, usually it's a slow start. Um, yeah, but then we get going. Once, once, once the, the engine starts churning, then we get into a good discussion. And we had a discussion because we've been meditating on a different passage about hope. What do we think hope is? 
So biblical hope and American Western hope are largely two different things. When we use the term hope, most often we use it in the most light, probably not going to happen type way, right? When we use hope in our modern definitions, it's a desire with an extremely low probability. Sure hope win the lottery. Sure hope it cools down today. Um, it's, it's nearly a vain want. Um, like an, it's, like to the point, it's almost like an unlikely dream. Oh, I'm hoping this, but it's, like, it's just not going to happen, right? That's how we tend to use hope. There are times we might use it a little bit stronger, but biblical is just opposite. It's completely opposite. Biblical concept of hope is, as I heard the words of one great theologian, Melissa Burns, an earnest expectation, an earnest expectation. You expect this to happen. This is not like just a, like a, eh, no, no, no. You're all in on this. You're all in on this anticipation. That's what hope means in the Bible. So when you're reading hope, knock that English stuff out of your head, that American stuff out of your head. It's not a vain or like wild dream. It is completely where I'm looking, completely where I've latched in. Hope is something that is secure, something we rejoice in. Here we rejoice, we, re- we boast, we take confidence in the hope we're about open and confident pride of our expectant faith in our wondrous God. So, so we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So there's who all who God is, who all Jesus is. And in this first part here, you're going to boast in two things, okay? The first one is you're going to boast in the fact that he has changed something. That now my hope is no longer anti-glory of him. Now my hope is pro-glory of him. He, there's something different in me now. Like to his, to his credit, to his credit, because of his grace. I now all put all of my hope in him versus a bunch of stuff. False hope here. Which, uh, scripture talks about the natural hope. The natural hope in here, the way he describes it, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What is our position until we put faith in Jesus Christ? You do not have hope and you do not have God. That's what's true of me coming out of the box. That's me of my nature. That's you of your nature. Hopefully you've put your faith in Jesus and now it's a different thing. You now have hope. You're no longer alienated towards God. And if you have biblical hope, earnest expectation, and all, an all-in anticipation of who he is, it does things to you. It changes who you are. 2 Corinthians 3.12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So that type of hope isn't just a, a token. It's not just a ceremonial thing. Well, I guess my hope's down in heaven. No, no. Really, where's your hope? <laughs> Where is your hope? And I, I, was telling, I was telling my family last night, yesterday was a day where I just wasn't, I wasn't hoping well. You know, I kind of, honestly, I got to sleep in yesterday. It's great. Um, and my hope was for the next 15 minutes of bliss. And the next 15 minutes bliss. And the next 15 minutes of bliss. And I wasn't doing a good job of tying to eternity, tying into God. And God in his kindness gave me an easy day for the first half of yesterday. And I, and I wasn't wise with it. I wasn't looking back and saying, God, thank you for this, and sinking my hope in there, and like, thank you for this rest, and like, looking to him. Instead, I would just go in for an, 
I'm just gluttonizing it, just give me a little more, get a little more, because the hope has shifted. My hope does belong to the Lord, but actively my hope has to be refreshed in Him. It has to be focused again and again and again in Christ, because every day in your natural flesh, it won't. It won't. And when your hope is fixed in the Lord, and that's not only simply true of your permanent hope, but your actual mental, volitional hope is fixed in the Lord, it will change who you are. It will make you confident. It will make you bold. It will change you. So third part is this. We wholeheartedly and openly place our confidence um, in the superiority of God. Our fourth and final piece is this. We proudly embrace the providing of our legitimacy. So the third one is we proudly embrace our singular hope. The fourth one is we proudly embrace, whoops, sorry, Ben. Um, We proudly embrace the providing of our legitimacy. So two words, if you're reading in that text, verse two, we had it. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings. So rejoice in hope and rejoice in sufferings. Rejoicing in hope makes sense. Rejoicing in sufferings, eh, that doesn't, right? That's things we want to pray against, like, oh, there's suffering. Let's pray against it. But here, there's a perspective of rejoicing in the sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, now watch the formula here, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we're back on that hope theme, but there's a sequence of it. And suffering becomes a tool back into the hope chain. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. What does that mean? This demonstrated expectancy doesn't fail us. This hope doesn't fail us. Because we then see the proof that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So here we see the reason we, we rejoice in sufferings is we see the proof that we are genuine recipients of God's love. That's the argument. You do, thank, you do thank God for the sufferings because through the sufferings and through the process of the sufferings whereby we look to the Lord, it's proof that God's love has been poured out in your heart through the Spirit that He's given you. The progress of suffering, endurance, character, and hope, it's kind of like this. You guys ever watch you know, that Marvel television, The Alone Show? Have you ever seen it? Much of us watched it. Okay, yeah, here we go. Okay, if you haven't seen it, get saved. Watch the show. Um, just kidding. Uh, it's a raising show where it's a, a survival show. They, they drop these people off with nothing. And there's always, fire making is a big process, right? You need a spark. You need a spark. Then after spark comes this glorious moment of smoke. And after the smoke comes a little moment of flame. And then eventually flame brings you to fire. Right? There's a progression of it. Same thing here. The sufferings encountered, when you endure through them, there's your smoke, and that creates character, there's, there's your flame. And eventually character, enough of that, produces the fire, which is hope. The reason you can celebrate in sufferings is because the only way that you're going to be sure that you are connected into that hope, and the only way you ever become strong is through workout. It's going to be through trial. It's going to be through enduring sufferings. Think, think through... Um, in, uh, I think it's Mark, Mark chapter 4, the parable of the soils. It's in, it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the parable of the soils, right, where the word of God comes. And th- there's actually a progression there. First wave, w- seeds hit. Bing, bing, bing. And, and a bunch of it gets wiped out because the birds land and they eat the seeds. But sometimes you endure through that. You've been sitting there and the word of God came to you and Satan didn't pluck it and run away with it. It stayed. And it 
took root. And then you endured phase two, which is like the sprouting, right? Like this sprouting young plant. Um, and, and you endured phase two. The sun came up, the sufferings and the temptations came up, and you didn't wilt and wither away. Praise God, you went through into stage three, which is now a rooted plant where the thistles come up, money and love and job and education and hopes and dreams and social media and all these cares start coming up around you. But by God's grace, you endure through stage three to a full fruiting plant. It's like this. It's like spark, smoke, flame, fire. It's suffering. It's endurance all the way to character. And enough character yields hope. One of the reasons, um, I, think, I think for me, I became aware of this Oh, I don't know, 22, 23 years old of my life. I'd been a believer for quite some time. And I was, I was really wrestling, just convicted with some sin. Um, I, to be honest with you, I think it was a, a, a phase when I was really battling with some lust. And um, if, you're, if you're a believer, I just firmly believe you're going to come down to these conversations like, God, am I even saved? Like, am I even saved? I know more about you than I ever knew before, but I seem to not care a lot. So I'm having one of these conversations with the Lord, just confessing my sin, asking him for help. I've had a few of those since then, like more since then. And um, I think this is one of the first times this passage and the concepts have really st- stuck in my mind, where I feel like the Lord brought back to my mind, going, okay, Scott, take a look at yourself now. Not an audible. I didn't hear an audible. Okay? But this idea of well, look at yourself now, and you wrestle against temptation and lust and these things. Look at it now. Compare it to when I first saved you. Is there change? Night and day, massive change. <laughs> massive, massive change. The, the failures I would have at this point, I would never even, even think about or blink an eye at back then, right? There's just been this continual, progressive growth over time. And for the first time in my life, I think at that age, all of a sudden this type of concept snapped in. Like, oh, enough, enough sufferings, sometimes self-inflicted, right, turns into endurance as you endure it. And enough endurance turns into character. If you become an enduring person, that's part of your character. It's what we say about you because we've seen it tested. If you didn't show up one time for a meeting, you always show up. Or you're not late one time, you are always late. It becomes your character, right? And that character, when you look enough of that character, that character becomes really a tangible, bank-on-it statement of, is God's spirit working you, pouring out his love, or is he not? And so at age 23, for the first time, I think I became aware of this in my life going, God, I don't have business saying that you're not at work in my life. You've clearly done a transforming work. Not belittling my sin and temptation at all, but you've clearly, clearly done a transforming work in my life. And I have hope. I have hope. And in a way, even with my sin, I can rejoice in my sufferings, right? Much less the sufferings that come from outside of us. So we do rejoice in the sufferings. Don't look for ways to self-inflict your sufferings. Um, self-inflicting temptation and foolishness, flaunting your weak faith. Don't need that. There's plenty of opportunities as you step forward in Christ and become strong in the Lord. You will encounter temptations. You will encounter sufferings. Take those moments and sure, ask for, for deliverance from the Lord. But if God doesn't deliver those things from you, because you do need to get out of the temptations. You need to get out. God promises you that in those moments, he'll be faithful and provide a way for you out. So talk to him about it. But even as you do it, whatever still remains doesn't mean you're neglected, doesn't mean you're not loved, and it doesn't mean that you're prone to sin, that you have to sin. Look at the sufferings he's given you, even when people are mistreating from outside, and if God will not remove that, there's a side to it in which you need to know how to boast in it. 
not as in a social media, like, man, I'm suffering for the Lord today. Really took one for the team. Stacking up the crowns, those kind of things. Um, but rather a boasting and saying, all right, this suffering that God's not removing from my life in loss, in, in suffering for him, in challenge of life, this is God's giving this to me, and he's building me with it. He's making me strong in it, and he's affirming that I actually have a living hope and not just some words. In this passage here, we see two graces. Um, William, can you bring me up my, my slide? Um, we see two graces in this passage. We tend to think grace, okay, so let's just say for a moment you never heard me go through this or right, we haven't gone through this at Smoked on High together. Um, when I go through the gospel plan, right, God who makes us, right, he makes us, he speaks to us in the scriptures. He is about his glory because there's nothing better than his glory and he can't be off track, right? So God makes us, designs us to have a relationship with him. Well, we're supposed to be centered on his glory, but instead of being centered on God, his glory, we fall, we are centered on ourselves instead of centered on him. And the effects of that are alienation, separation, death, naked, destitute, without hope, without God, and a few other select choice terms, right? Deader than doornails, no hope, and we are constantly lifting our little ant fist against him. In the words of Romans 3, we lack God's glory. But then God says, I want to offer you something in grace. Instead of being anti-me, I'm going to offer you a chance to be pro-me. Instead of being anti-glory, I'm going to offer you a chance to be for my glory. And not only that, all kinds of benefits that come with it. You'd actually be my sons and daughters. Your enemies and aliens down there. And instead of that, you'd think it'd just be citizens. But no, all the way in, sons and daughters. And I'll make you heirs of all things. You'll judge angels. I mean, it's off the charts, all the stuff that's owned there. But I'll be God. I'll be God. And you won't be. And for some of us, we're like, yes, please. I do not want to live in the dark anymore. I want to live under you. You have the words of life. I want to be with you, and I want all the blessings you give. And some of us go, you know what? I'm a pretty good king. I don't think so. I don't want it. Right? So people reject the offer. It just stops right there. They're like, meh, or I don't even think I'm not that bad. But if we want that offer, then we encounter a second grace. How then is the offer given to us? Be better. Subscribe to something, get dipped in some water, do some communion, something fancy like that. No, no, no. The way you receive payment to give you the offer, it too is grace. It's the grace of Jesus. Often we think, and the last part is just respond. That is, that's faith, right? It is salvation offered to us. We place, we place our faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and so we say, God, I trust the work of Jesus. And he goes, and do you want to add anything into that? And you say, no, I don't part of you in your self-righteous heart go, yeah, and I memorized this, or yeah, and I did this, or yeah, and I quit that. Keep it in your pocket. You got nothing. It's the grace gift alone, right? So when we think of the grace of God, we commonly think of payment. The grace of God brings us to God. But the force of this passage is this is the grace in which we stand. The new grace in which we stand is a grace of ongoing and continual hope in the glory of God, we are changed. We're different. He gets in there, he puts a spirit in us and changes it, flips what we think and what we love and praise God he does it. We're not sitting there hoping like, oh, I sure hope Lynn Molesbury prayed the prayer right back in Yorba Linda back in 85. Uh, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what she's banking, banking on is back then. She can now look and say, am I transformed? Is there a new hope in my life? Have I, do I, is this the grace in which I stand? So we are people of God's grace. 
We love what he's given us. Let me ask you this. If you think of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In our passage today, we had faith, hope, and love. Our faith in Jesus, our hope in Jesus, and the love of God poured out in our hearts, demonstrated by the Spirit being there, by giving us endurance through all these things. What is the point? But what does he do when his spirit, when his love is poured out in us? It makes us come to life in this faith and hope. Not getting to love. So love is where faith and grace, where faith in grace and hope in God are actually believed. Check this out. Love is where faith and grace and hope in God are actually believed and worked out into thoughts and actions and time. If we do not love, we're not really believing faith and we're not into grace and we're not into hope. There's some kind of, it's kind of something short in the lines. So love is the outwork and when we actually have faith and grace, we actually have hope in God. So not getting to love shows faith and hope are either fake or weak. So I just want to encourage you this morning, as we look at this, being people of dual graces, right? A grace of peace, and a grace of pride, which is the new soul, right? The soul that like takes pride in the glory of God. What will you do with it? Will you process that and make yourself a little more thorough in your, your systemizing of theology? Or will you believe it? Will you believe it? Will you come back away from the dinner table and go outside with this new or fresh or refined information and do something with it? in you and others. So I just want to invite you to bow your heads and consider these things briefly before the Lord. Number one, how does the lack of this information and promise in this passage cripple the believer? How is the believer crippled by not understanding or believing what's in this passage? Question number two, when you encounter this belief or you're captured by this, what will you experience in your life if you're captivated and actually believe this? What will you experience? Father, it's an amazing passage of grace, of how our faith ties into that grace in our hope of the glory of God, in a rejoicing of your work in us as you create endurance in us because we can tell that we are now the sons and daughters of God. Father, please um, help us understand it and get it and the truth of it. And please, Lord, let us believe it. Um, let it matter. Let, let, it, let it matter more than lunch. Let it matter more than rest. Um, let it take true fruit in our lives. Protect us, Lord, from learning something new and becoming callous against it. Please create good and beautiful fruit out of this, I pray. Father, please now be with us as we close out in a couple of songs here and as we celebrate the work of Jesus in communion. Um, guide our hearts by your spirit so that we might worship you, we might have joy in you, confidence in you, because our hope is in you, the living God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Over these last two songs, we invite you guys just to go in the back and take communion with 
Some of the other believers, if you know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, take a pass on it. But this is our time to celebrate in song and in communion the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, the giver of us of two graces, a grace of peace through accomplished forgiveness and a grace in which we now stand whereby we actually now are people who boast with having hope in the living God.